Um, class is entitled Faith Seeking Understanding. Y'all come on in. We've got plenty of seats in the middle and down front here. Uh, Faith Seeking Understanding Lessons Unlearned. Lessons Learned and Unlearned. I want to, um, I'm going to keep working as, as I'm able to kind of tie together the different parts and pieces of the class while trying to keep each day, each uh, session kind of somewhat standalone, but kind of keep finding ways to weave all these things together. Um, today I want to point us back to a couple of sessions we did thinking about uh, legalism and self-righteousness and grace. And if you remember, I, I talked about kind of telling some of my own stories of experiencing various forms of um, legalisms, various forms of moralisms, and this sort of word from the Apostle, we are saved by grace through faith. And that moreover, even this faith is a gift of God to us. Saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. And we discussed the way in which, um, even though you want to put punctuation there and stop, saved by grace through faith, that doesn't mean there aren't other questions to ask, right? And one of those questions is, as we discussed in a second session, well, what is the nature of this grace? As a, the word grace is, means uh, something that has been gifted, right? It assumes the giftedness of something. And so then the question becomes, well, what has been gifted? What is the nature of the gift that's given us? And we suggested that one of the things you see in the Apostle Paul is there's, there's two major elements of that which has been gifted. There's um, what, what the theologians call pardon, that is, in response to the guilt that we carry because of our sin, the guilt that we carry because of our rebellion against the ways and purposes of God, uh, we're, we're forgiven. And so grace is first pardon. But grace is not just pardon. Grace, we said, is also power. As when you get to Romans 6 and 7, Paul will say, look, our, our, our problem is that we know what is good, and we don't do the good that we want to do. We do the bad that we don't want to do. We know what is righteous. We know what is good. And we want to do it. But we don't do it. And instead we do that which we do not want to do. You remember I told the story about uh, Leo Tolstoy as a young man being on the front of a, of a, of a war. And uh, I'm telling how that morning he had slept with a prostitute in the camp. And he wrote in his journal, I'll never do it again. And his next entry that afternoon in his journal was, I did it again. And that this is the nature, Paul says, this is the nature of the human predicament. That we do it again. And we do it again. And what we desperately need is not just to be told, you're forgiven. We need to be told, you are forgiven. But we need more than to be told, you are forgiven. We need the power of God that makes a different way of life possible. And so Paul in Romans 6 and 7 will speak of, he'll use language of bondage, he'll use language of slavery, he'll use language of servitude, over and over and over again trying to drive this point home, is that grace is not only forgiveness, grace is also power. Now I want to, um, I want to kind of try to expand about some questions about this and, um, and ask, if we think about grace this way, one of the common questions that soon arises 
is people will ask, you know, well, why should I do, if, if, if it's all grace, if it's all free, then why should we do the right thing? And one common answer to this that some people give is that they will say, well, you should do what's good because um, it shows gratitude. And I would say, well, it seems to me to make sense that through the gifts of God, that gratitude is certainly a most right response. But I want to suggest that's an altogether insufficient answer to that, that question. Uh, that the question is uh, much more profound, the answer is much more profound than simply saying, because you're grateful. Um, you might think about it this way. Um, if, if one is in bondage to resentment, um, then, well, let's just do a little poll. How many of you would ever say you've, you've, you've had some bondage to resentment? And I'll be the first to raise my hand. So you know, you know, I've learned this from folks in the in the recovery world. They'll talk about how resentment is uh, is like drinking poison and hoping the other guy dies. Um, it, and it, indeed, it is, isn't it? Right. Um, and so, when you think about um, the servitude to resentment, and if one experiences a power to be free from resentment, then all of the sudden that you see that forgiveness, me learning to practice forgiveness, is not something that I do simply in gratitude to God, but forgiveness is what I do because it is life-giving itself to me. And this is a gift that God gives me. Or you might think about you know, to, to, to love is so superior to lust. You know, if, if, um, I've known lust, and I've known love. And I'm now at the age which I can say, I've never had anything as exquisite in lust that I have known in love. Or, if one is in bondage to covetousness, then to know the gift of peace, or serenity, or contentment, is so much sweeter than that covetousness. So, we don't do the right thing simply to say thank you to God. But instead the right thing, or the good thing, is itself the gift of God to us. And moreover, God, proclaims the Apostle Paul, gives us the power to participate in the good. Does that make sense? Any comments or questions quickly about, about that? Well, let me suggest, though that I still have not given any sort of framework for thinking about the nature of the good. Um, how could we think about what it means 
to participate in the good? Well, this is a question that um, has been raised in moral philosophy for, for many, 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 many centuries, for millennia. And I want to suggest this morning that um, one, of the, one of the ways in which uh, Christianity has been remarkable about this is the kind of answer it gives to that. But I also think that, um, as many Christian theologians have noted through the centuries, we can also learn a great deal about what's going on in the Bible if we take something of a cue, and hopefully I won't get stoned here, but something of a cue from somebody like Aristotle, who obviously was neither a Jew nor a Christian. But I think Aristotle teaches us a fascinating way to understand what we mean when we talk about the good and when we talk about the moral life. And so let me do a quick primer on moral philosophy from Aristotle and see if it might help us think about the nature and the meaning of the good or to participate in the good. I'm, uh, I'm taking my cue here from a, from a contemporary moral philosopher named Alistair McIntyre. McIntyre is a, is a Catholic he was, uh, early in his career, he was at Vanderbilt, then he was at Notre Dame, uh, then he was at Duke for a while, then he back at Notre Dame uh, over the last uh, decade or so. But McIntyre says that if you look at moral philosophy prior to the Enlightenment, so if you're, if you're not up on your um, intellectual history timeline, uh, the Enlightenment typically is dated to around 1650. Um, and, and so what McIntyre says is that prior to the Enlightenment, when people would talk about the moral life, it always carried about three primary elements in thinking about the nature of the moral life. And those three were this. First, you have untutored human nature. <coughs> or we might say uh, humankind as it is unschooled human nature. And then we have humankind as it could be if it realized, hold on, three more, its essential nature. Untutored human nature, humankind as it could be if it realizes the essential nature. Or, or this is a word that the, the word telos that you may have heard before is just a way of saying what's the end or the purpose or the goal of what it means to be a human being. Or what's the end and the purpose and the goal of what it means to be a human community. Or, to use explicitly theological language, we might say, for what are we created? What is the purpose of life? Or Irenaeus in the second century, we might say, Irenaeus says, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Is one of my favorite quotes from the early church. All right, listen to that language, right? Uh, Irenaeus doesn't say the, the essence of Christianity is giving you a list of things you better do. He's saying the glory of God is a human being who is fully alive. You want to know what it means to glorify God? Then be a human being who's alive and doing what a human being does when the human being realizes his or her essential good nature. So this was Aristotle. Untutored human nature, 
humankind as it could be if it realizes its essential nature. And then there's a third element. And the third element are called virtues. And let me give you a quick, this will be on the test. Okay, a virtue, yeah, a virtue is a skill, a habit, or a disposition that enables one to realize one's telos. A skill, a habit, or a disposition that allows one to realize one's essential nature. Um, now note the language there. A skill, a habit, or a disposition. Um, a vice Is a skill, a habit, or a disposition that leads one away from one's essential nature. Now, the, the, the importance there of skill or habit or disposition is very purposeful here for both of these, right? Because if you'll think about it just a moment, um, certainly I can say from my own personal experience, the things that are most damaging to me and most damaging to my relationships are skills I spend a lot of time learning. Right, most, most of us, our bad habits, we actually invest a lot of time learning how to do those well. And you spend a lot of time investing in learning how to hide them, right? Learning how to get better at how to get the, the rush quicker or more intensely or whatever it may be, right? We spend a lot of time learning stuff that destroys us potentially. And the insight and the brilliance of this I think is so so terribly helpful because the notion here is that what's going on in the moral life is asking ourselves are the habits and the dispositions and the skills that we're learning are these things that are going to lead you to life? To what it could be for you to be the human being you were created to be? Or is it going to lead you to death? and destruction, and to the undoing of yourself. Isn't this a helpful framework, or do you find this helpful, I should say? Now, uh, let me make a few more kind of observations here. Um, well, before I make other observations, questions, comments about this so far? Could you say something about what you mean by that phrase, good, like here in the, in the second category at the top corner, I can't see where yeah, Yes, I will. In just a moment, yes. Yeah, that's that's the next big piece, so thanks for raising that. Are virtues in this model somewhat akin to spiritual discipline? And if so, does that um, expand the category of what we could consider a, a spiritual discipline? That's a great question. Um, and so, so let me write these down because we'll try to answer these same. What do we mean by the good? And... Um, is our virtues expansive? Might it include a lot of things we don't normally think about that might go there? Yes, that's a great question. And we'll come to that in a minute. Any any other kind of burning questions or things you're noting or observing? These are terribly helpful. What is disposition? Disposition. So by just you mean just the, the language? I mean like in this in this scenario. Like a personality yes, in tendency? other words, yeah, am I um, 
am I disposed to irritability or am I disposed to criticism or am I disposed to anger? Um, because, so in other words, the virtue tradition is always very good about saying it's not just about outside performance, but it's about the internal self, right? So I can, I can, I can show on the outside. Um, I've, I've had people tell me, you always look very calm. And I've laughed because I think, well, especially in my, my 20s and 30s and 40s. I mean, I, you know, I got, I got treated for an ulcer when I was in seventh grade. I was wired for anxiety, you know, <laughs> whether by genetics or whether by family systems. I don't know, but it's like, you know, give me something to worry about. Ooh, ah, right, I got it. Um, you know, those little, those little purple pills, man, I've consumed a lot of those you know, through the years, you know. Um, and, but on the outside, I would look very... And so the virtue tradition is saying, well, what's going on inside? What's the disposition of the self that's going on with that? Great. Anybody else? Is, is, it, is your theory here that, or is this theory that being fully alive is like the Or is there more than just being fully alive? Um, for now, it's, let's say it's being fully alive. But um, what happens in this, so this comes from Aristotle, but so Aquinas, like in the 12th and 13th century, um, Aquinas is going to say Aristotle is right, but he just doesn't have a full enough picture. And the full enough picture comes from the revelation of the gospel and the meaning of the gospel in this vision. So, for example, um, Aristotle will say the point of life is. You might want to take a guess. If you're not. If you know Aristotle, you know the answer to this already, but you might want to take a guess. If you don't know Aristotle, what, what he might say the point of life is? Achieving your talents. It is, and that looks like happiness. Right? He uses the word eudaimonia, which is not, by, by, again, by eudaimonia, he doesn't mean whatever you think is going to make you happy. Right? <laughs> he means that... It, uh, the, the philosophers these days, well, the psychologists these days will say it, it, it's more like what the, the psychologists mean when they talk about being in a state of flow. It's this is what you were created for and you were just in this and this is so good and you know. You know, if you've had those moments where you're like, man, this is, it's hard. You know, you may be working really, really hard. You may be working at the very edge of your capacity, but you know Ah, oh, was made for this, right? That's kind of what Aristotle means by eudaimonia. This is this sort of deep happiness that is possible to a human being if we work on developing the virtues. Okay, yes, Matt. That's, uh, that's subjective, though, right? It is subjective. My happiness is killing your civilization. Yeah, so we'll, we'll have to address that. Um... Is it individual or subjective? Great. Okay, let's try to let's try to talk about a number of these things and fill this out a little bit. Then, um, first, let's ask, what does this look like? Or, but more specifically, let's ask, what do we mean by telos 
And what does that look like in informing the virtues? Before, before I go to answer that question, let me just give you, for example, one example that Aristotle uses. He said, if you want to see a glimpse of this, kind of a, a practical example, he said, imagine an untutored musician. And then imagine what it looks like if you were the essence of what it means to be a musician. And then think about what does it mean to develop certain skills and habits and dispositions that enable one to go from an untutored musician to what it looks like to be the essence of what it means to be a musician. Um, and I, you know, I've gotten to be around enough really world-class musicians to be amazed to watch the ways in which they began to develop a capacity that mere mortals don't have. So let me, let me take a, make a few notes about this. All right, um, one story about this. One night, one day, um, I was in this setting where we were, we're getting ready to have a show at the Ryman Auditorium, and we're backstage, and there was, um, there was one Country Music Hall of Famer in the room. There was a couple of guys in there that have an arm length's worth of uh, Academy of Country Music Awards. Um, seven, eight musicians that are just some of the best around. And they played this um, bluegrass number that was going to be the opening number, and they had a big time, and, you know, it was fun. And then they got to the end, and someone said to Buddy, Buddy Green, a friend of mine, and Buddy's, Buddy's kind of seen as a harmonica god among those who are into that sort of thing. Um, and they, they said to Buddy, Buddy, you didn't take a break. You know, you didn't take your turn. And Buddy laughed, and he said, I, I've never played this song before. I, you, don't, you don't need me. It was great the way it was. And they laughed, and they said, it doesn't matter. You've never played it before. Let's do it again, and Buddy, you take a break on the harmonica. And I actually pulled out my phone. I have video of this. I pulled out my phone because I wanted to see what does it look like when Buddy Green, who has spent his life developing the capacity to play the essence of what it means to be a harmonica player, the first time he ever plays this song. And so they start it up, and it goes to the first two people, and it gets to Buddy, and he pulls out that <coughs> harmonica, and he plays it just like he'd been playing it his whole life. And, and you're seeing next to him is a guy, again, who has an arm length full of Academy of Country Music Awards for fiddle and for mandolin, starts giggling, <laughs> listening to Buddy play this for the first time in his life, like he had always done it. This is the meaning of the virtue tradition that one develops these skills and habits and dispositions and one has through this a certain freedom that one cannot have otherwise. In other words, in the virtue tradition, freedom is not down here. Freedom is only up here. Or another way to put it is, one only knows freedom on the other side of the discipline, not on this side of the discipline. One only knows freedom on the other side of the virtues and not on this side of the virtues. Right? A, a, starting, a starting musician can say, just leave me alone, let me do what I want to do. And those who are tutored will say, well, if that's what you insist, then if really? But you'll never know freedom if that's the way you approach it, right? And so here the idea is that freedom is correlated with, let us call it, authentic 
or healthy or life-giving, whatever word you want to use, um, authority. Then here the idea is that authority in this system, in this way of thinking about things, is not something to be feared. Unhealthy authority, yes. Damaging authority, arbitrary, capricious authority, all problematic. But authority that is schooled in the way of life towards which we are striving, that's the thing. So you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, look, if you want to take the next step in growth and maturity, find someone who has something that you want and go get to know them and ask them questions and say, how do you do that? And what's it been like for you to learn to do that, right? This is, goes back to the virtue traditions. That you look at this, where you want to go, and if one strives and dis if submits to these disciplines, one knows the freedom one could not have otherwise. That makes sense, kind of conceptually? The, the virtues feels like discipline. Uh, how do you tie into that giftedness? We've all seen five-year-olds play a grand piano in the lowest way. Yeah. Uh, what's the connection between giftedness, which is something that's not about us, and the discipline and the work that it takes to do some of these things? Yeah. There's all sorts of books being written about that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, there are definitely those who are on the, the giftedness thing that some people just have and other people don't. And then there are others who will say it's all about hard work. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, I've, re I've read enough of that kind of stuff to think, I, I think in some ways it has to be a little bit of both. Um, but you, I'm sure a lot of you have heard the so-called mastery thesis. By, who, who, who did that? Was that... Um, who, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, where he looks at all these people that are expert at what they do, and he says basically it takes 10,000 hours of intentional practice, not any kind of practice, but intentional practice where you're constantly pushing yourself to really get to the place where you're doing this, and he looks at these case studies of that. So, uh, yes, talent and gift, but to become what one could become in, in the virtue tradition is it's going to be a lot of work and a lot of discipline and a lot of practice along the way. Now, we still haven't talked about number one here yet, or number two, or number three. So let's see. How, much, how are we doing on time? You got it. You got 15 minutes. 15 minutes, okay. Um, so let's try this. Let's, let's first make the subjective thing even worse before we try to make that better. And ask ourselves the question, let, let's think about... Um, when we say virtues, what does that mean? So let's imagine, for example, that you have a, um, a basketball player and ask, what would the virtues of a basketball player look like? So just quickly throw some out. What's that? Now, thanks for raising it, but no. <laughs> because this goes to Byron's observation about gift, right? There's, because height is a gift and it's not a skill or a habit or a disposition. So one could say it's a virtue of a basketball player, but in the sense of a skill or a habit or disposition, not so much. Constant practice. My son, who's maybe as tall as me, was outstanding. But when he went to see a friend, he dribbled his basketball from the time he was a little bitty. So, so that sort of constant discipline yeah, practice. Great. Somebody else? Agility. Agility. Well, let's make that a little more expansive and say just athleticism, generally speaking. What else? What are some things particular to basketball? Shooting. Shooting. Dribbling. Dribbling. 
consistency. Yeah, let's put get consistency on here. Intentionality. Intentionality. Teamwork. Team. Yeah. Uh, so teamwork. Yeah, I want to make sure we talk about that one just a second. Um, let's go to um, Dave's question about this one just a second. What might be some things that are important here that you don't necessarily immediately think about basketball, but are going to be really important if you're going to be the essence of a basketball player? Self-image. Self-image. Nutrition. Nutrition. Can we add sleep? Yes. Yeah. Now look at look at how expansive all of a sudden we've gotten here, right? You know, does it? Um, you know, I'll tell my students. They'll say, "I stayed up all night long," and 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 I'll say, "That's stupid. <laughs> Don't ever do it again." Right? If the studies show, if you get less than five hours. You're, ta you're tanking on your performance the next day on exam. Moreover, studies show that if on a consistent basis you get less than seven to eight hours of sleep every night, you're doing damage to yourself. You're hurting your body, you're hurting your mind, you're hurting your brain, you're hurting your capacities. Seven, eight hours of sleep. There's all sorts of studies, right? Anybody who thinks, uh, I'm different, I can do better, well, the studies show, no, you're not. You know, you can't, right? So all of this kind of stuff. Uh, let's do vices really quick. What would be some examples of vices? Laziness. Laziness. Selfishness. Selfishness. Gluttony. Gluttony. One more. Drugs. Taking drugs. Taking drugs. Now, let's, let's uh, think about this a second. Note the way in which what we mean by some of this stuff is dependent upon the way we have defined the telos. Right? So in this case, the telos is the essence of what it means to be a basketball player, right? And so let's talk about selfishness and teamwork just a second. Uh, so selfishness is a vice, right? So let's imagine we've got a good Christian basketball player and so as a Christian basketball player, I'm, I'm dribbling down the court, and let's imagine that Joey's on the other team. And I'm dribbling down the other team, and Joey says, Lee, pass me the ball. And everybody laughs, and I think, well, I'm a Christian. I should not be selfish. So here you go, Joey. I'm right. not athletic, so it wouldn't be. Wouldn't <laughs> why, why is that not okay? Say again? It doesn't conform to, conform to the context, right? So the context here tells us a great deal about the appropriate exercise of the virtues. Or let's think about proper nutrition. Think about the difference for nutrition between a basketball player and a sumo wrestler. <laughs> These look very, very different, right? Well, how do you know the difference? By the telos definition. By the telos, right? It always keeps going back to that. And so this, this concept or construct defines the particularities of what these look like, right? Uh, let's, let's do it, let's play it out this way. Let's imagine, for example, we're talking about a soldier. 
and let's see if there's overlap between the virtues and the vices. Uh, discipline? Yep. Athleticism? Maybe. Maybe. Depends on what Yes, depending on what kind of what kind of role. Shooting? <laughs> I've been using this example for 20 years, and everybody, they laugh every time. Um, and why why is it so many laugh? Because humor is is grounded in irony, and the irony is dependent upon the telos, the different competing teloi, right? Um, so again, the particularity of this informs even what a word means. Just a quick parenthetical. The reason we have to argue about words so vociferously is because the words mean different things in different contexts. And we have to learn this and argue about this. Okay. So we go on a dribbling, nah. Consistency, yeah, probably. Teamwork, yeah. Um, Self-image, yeah. Nutrition, sleep. Um, laziness, that's a vice too. Selfishness, vice or virtue for a soldier? It all depends on what we mean, right? So let's think about this just a second. Um, a Marine would say it's selfish, it's not a virtue. Yeah, because you leave no man behind. Semper Fi, right? You, 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 you try, you're absolutely no selfishness vis a vis one another. Right? You give your life for each other. The complete emptying of selfishness. Um, if I'm dead, I can't hope you. Right. <laughs> so, but, but think about how all this works, is that, that all of this stuff means that you learn certain skills and certain dispositions that get so deeply rooted in you by the culture of the endeavor that you're not carrying on moral dialogue when you're in the heat of the battle. You're doing it, right? What you want as a, as a, as a basketball player is you're not thinking about technique while you're on the court. It has been so deeply rooted in you that it's a part of who you are. So now, let me, let me do one kind of quick note here. Let's think about the difference between these two this way. Right here we've got, um, let's imagine um, over here, you, you want to make sure you have a certain competitiveness, right? Well, we ask, well, what's, the, what's competitive, competitiveness rightfully look like? Well, anybody remember the um, Tanya Harding story? <laughs> All right. So Tanya Harding, who um, hires a uh, hitman to take a hammer, I think it's the story, she's taking a hammer to bash in the knees of her opponent right before a skating event, right? Now, we ask ourselves the question, would that be a legit thing for a soldier to do in the heat of battle? Well, of course, right? Why is that okay for the soldier but not okay for Tanya Harding? Because we've got competitiveness over here. Because competitiveness has limits, and the limits are based upon the telos. Even warfare, according to international law, and warfare according to the Christian tradition, the Dutch Bible war tradition, also has limits. Um, even in that context, right? So, is it subjective? Absolutely. It's subjective based upon the telos, right? 
Um, does that leave us with an utter subjectivity? I don't think so, but we'll have to keep digging at that one in very, very important ways. Uh, are the virtues expansive? Yes, we do see the ways the virtues become to be expansive. So, so in other words, if you put all of this stuff in terms of the moral life, all of a sudden, or I would say if you put it in terms of your spiritual life, all of a sudden through this scenario, it may be that one of the best things you can do for yourself spiritually is to start getting a good night's sleep. That may be the most important thing you can do for your Christian discipleship, is start sleeping well, to the degree that it's in, within your power. Um, practicing good sleep hygiene. And, I mean, how often do we talk about sleep as a spiritual discipline? Hardly ever, right? But if you have this sort of framework, all of a sudden it's like, oh, that matters a lot. Nutrition matters a lot. Um, everything about my life now matters because everything about my life is oriented toward me being the essence of who we or I are created to be. Does that make sense? Um, and the good. But we see the way in which the good is, is informed by the telos. How many minutes do we have? we got four. Four minutes. So, let's go back to this just a second. Um, we've got these virtues. We've got untutored self. We've got a picture of what we could be if we realize our toss. And then I'll just ask quickly uh, this question. Where where does this come from? What fills the content of this out? Matt shouldn't have left because this is to help his question. Um, where does this come from? Well, the, the philosophers will say it comes from narrative, community, which is another way of saying it comes from your identity. Um, let's think about this just a second. In um, Deuteronomy, the fourth of the Ten Commandments is what? I remember. What's that? No, that's number five. You're close. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why are we commanded to keep the Sabbath day? Because because God rested on the Sabbath day. If I had asked Exodus, Andy would have got it right. But I asked Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, we have the so-called synoptic problem in the Pentateuch. See? Oh, that's such a great joke, but nobody got it. <laughs> Talk about community and telos here, right? Um, uh, so the, um, in Deuteronomy it says, you shall rest on the, se on the seventh day because you were slaves in Egypt. So imagine this. They're brought out of Egypt... And, you know, in the, in the rhetoric, the literary structure of Deuteronomy, they're being brought together before they go into the promised land. And Moses is going to give them all the law. And he says, listen up, these are the big ten. And he starts out in the preface and says, remember, God brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He doesn't say, by the way, hey, I'm giving you a list of rules that are true for all times, all places, all peoples. Do the right thing. He says, 
You are a particular people who were brought out of Egypt by the power of God with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, I tell you today, you shall have no graven images, not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You'll have no other gods before me. I messed up the order. And then number four, you shall rest on the seventh day. Can you imagine it, you know, rippling through, you know, I'm making this up, obviously, this part up, but, you know, rippling through all these former slaves, and they say, did he say we have to rest every seventh day? They said, that's what he said. He said, we have to rest every seventh day. And, and then you go on, and the Sabbath principle from Deuteronomy 5, or 6, somewhere in there, um, you go over to Deuteronomy 15, and he takes the Sabbath principle and he says, okay, here we're going to talk about economics for a minute. He says, if somebody gets into debt, every seven years you forgive the debt. And every seven years let your land lie fallow and rest from your farming. And um, every seven years, if you have an indentured servant who's fallen into hard times, that's now your indentured slave because of debt, then let them serve you seven years. And at the end of the seventh year, you give them all that they need to go get up on their feet and go live life again. And then after those three chunks of teaching, he says, You shall keep these things this day I am proclaiming to you because you were slaves in Egypt. So just like you shall do this stuff this way because you are a basketball player, you shall do this stuff because you are a musician, you shall do this stuff because you were slaves in Egypt and you've been brought out by the mighty hand of God and this is what it looks like to be God's people who are not like Egypt. That makes sense? Isn't that beautiful? So all of this is grounded in narrative and community and identity and all of these things in, these practices, these habits, these skills and these dispositions allow us to be a particular kind of people with a particular kind of freedom and a particular kind of beauty we might not ever know otherwise. So why do this stuff? Not just to show gratitude. Show gratitude, of course. But because the claim that we are a particular kind of people with a particular kind of story and this is what it looks like to be fully alive, created in this way for this kind of purpose. Thank you all. Y'all have a great week. See you next week.